Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampion in Washington, D.C. And welcome to this second episode of World Review from the New Statesman. We're recording on Friday, the 26th of June. Thank you for joining us. Emily, how are things in D.C.? It's actually a historic day here because the House of Representatives is voting on D.C. statehood. And how is Berlin? Not bad. The talk here is all about next week Germany's taking over the rotating presidency of the EU. So in, in political circles here, the discussion is all about what it's going to do with that and where the kind of Angela Merkel is going to use it to burnish her legacy. I'm actually recording this in the middle of a monsoon-like summer thunderstorm, which is appropriate as we're going to be talking about India. So apologies if the sound is not great. But before we introduce our guest and get on to our main discussion, what has been your moment of the week? My moment of the week is that Kosovo and Serbia were supposed to have talks in Washington, D.C. to finally get a deal through which Serbia might recognize Kosovo as as an independent country. But the talks were derailed because Faci, the president of Kosovo, was indicted for war crimes. And the reason this jumped out at me is that two years ago, I was reporting on this and a European diplomat with knowledge of the situation said that the reason that Thatchi so badly wanted a deal was not just for peace and stability and for his country, but because he wanted to make himself indispensable to the process so that he would not be indicted for war crimes. If that was indeed true, obviously that that gamble did not pay off because it is yet another yet another twist in the the journey that is the Balkans. What is your moment of the week? Mine is also a European moment of the week this time, and it is a rare good news story in international relations these days, or at least potentially is. So I was very interested to see on Wednesday when a poll appeared in in Poland in a magazine called Politica that suggested that the mayor of Warsaw, Rafał Trzaskowski, might just be a sliver ahead of the Polish president, Andrzej Duda, in a second round of the presidential election. Poland goes to the polls on Sunday, as we record this. That'll be the first round. And there's a possibility that this much more liberal candidate, Trzaskowski, might just win, which would, of course, really upend the narrative that we're all used to about Central Europe being a sort of hotbed of right-wing populism. So that's definitely something to watch and a piece of good news, I think, in fairly grim times. That's my moment of the week. I think it's time to introduce our guest. Yes, we are so excited this week. Our guest is Tanvi Madan. She is a senior fellow at Brookings and the author of Fateful Triangle, How China Shaped U.S.-India Relations During the Cold War. Tanvi, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Emily and Jeremy. It's wonderful to be on the podcast. Before we really get into it, for some listener who perhaps hasn't been following the India-China dispute, can you just briefly get them up to speed? Uh, India and China have had a long-standing boundary dispute that has flared up in the last few weeks 
Uh, since early May, there has been tension at the boundary as the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, uh, moved at multiple points at the boundary, which is disputed, to change the status quo by either taking over ter- parts of territory that both sides claim or kind of hindering Indian patrols in areas that both sides traditionally patrol. What happened on June 15th has escalated this a bit, which was, uh, to put it mildly, which was that we saw a clash that occurred at one point of this kind of, of these multiple locations, uh, where you saw Indian and Chinese soldiers get into a violent confrontation that led to at least 20 Indian soldiers being killed. We do not know about the casualties on the Chinese side because they haven't declared them. Uh, But these are the first fatalities, battle fatalities on the India-China boundary in 45 years. And it's the most serious skirmish at the boundary between India and China since 1967. There have been many people who have pointed to this and said, this is going to be the thing that takes India from walking a, a fine line or a balancing act or whatever cliche you like between the US and China and brings it more firmly into Washington's camp. You had a piece out this week that suggested that while India might move somewhat closer to the U.S., it's not quite as simple as India now chanting USA, USA. Could you tell us more about how you see this balance of power? Sure. I think some of the discussion I've seen has been about India is non-aligned, and this is going to take India from non-alignment to alliance with the U.S. And I don't think that's the framing from which this should be seen about the kind of impact this moment will have. I think For one, an alliance is not on offer. NATO-style alliance is not on offer from the U.S., and it's not something India wants. I think what you've seen over the last two decades is a steadily uh, moving alignment between the U.S. and India when it comes to China. And so you see India, even if it won't move into one camp or the other, I think India will find itself, the kind of choices India makes will find it aligned in terms of its perceptions, interests, and approaches very much with the U.S. and a number of other countries that see China as a challenge and want to actually uh, tackle it with other allies and partners. And so I think what you will see is a closer alignment. I think it is what is going to be up for debate is the terms and extent of that alignment with the U.S. I think this cannot be seen as some people have comparing it to how the kind of approach India took in the Cold War between the US and Soviet Union. This is going to be a different superpower confrontation that India faces because one of those antagonists is an Indian adversary, to put it very bluntly. Mm-hmm. So you will see kind of India aligning, but kind of a, a one caution that I would say is that that will not mean that India will not continue to partner with countries like Russia because for India, it sees Russia as part of its the, the, the solution to its China problem, even though the US and others see Russia as part of the problem. And so I think India, both because Russia continues to be a key source of military equipment for India, but also India has this hope that in the long term, Russia will balance China and there will will be a kind of a Sino-Russian wedge as there was during the Cold War. India will continue to also maintain that relationship and not to mention the fact that it continues to be uncertain about US reliability and also the consistency of uh, Washington's China policy and whether that will actually continue to be as competitive as it is today. I'd be fascinated to unpack that a bit, Tanvi, because I mean, your your excellent book explains how you can't really see India-US relations in the Cold War without looking at the influence of India-China relations. 
and you 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 conclude with this this idea that that things might be going a bit back to the fifties when when Eisenhower was building up Nehru's India as a counterbalance to Mao's China, and then I'm struck by by hearing you say that that, that things might be different this time round, and that you can only sort of take that knock on effect so far. I mean, looking at in fact, I think Emily, you were there at the time, but there was this big Namaste Trump event in in February where Modi had gave Trump a kind of big rally in his home state of Gujarat. There's all this talk about the the quad, you know, India, US, China, Japan kind of playing a more a, a bigger role in counterbalancing China and Asia. I mean, first of all, kind of what do you think is different now from in the Cold War? You know, how far can we take that comparison with the 50s? And secondly, sort of what what is limiting India from going all the way to being a sort of Japan style ally to, to the US? Sure. I think one of the things, actually, that the history shows is that while India might have been non-aligned vis-a-vis the U.S. and Soviet Union, the big difference is today it's not about the U.S. and the Russians as much as it is about the choice facing India is the U.S. and China. And in the past, even during the, the historical period that my book covers, one thing becomes quite clear after kind of the mid to late 50s, as China becomes more of a challenge for India, as it sees it as a threat, is that even as Nehru, the architect, the first Indian prime minister, the architect of non-alignment said, there is no non-alignment vis-a-vis China. And so I would say that's the case today as well. And so in that sense, there is a consistency that if you think about non-alignment, it needs to be put into that context. The way I try to think about non-alignment, though, because what explains why it's been so consistent and why India has followed this policy almost across every government is that it's the strategy underlying it, which is diversification, which is keeping multiple partners because you want to maintain your strategic and decisional autonomy or freedom. You don't want to be dra- get dragged along by one block or camp's choices. And so I think you see that in the sense today of India having these multiple partnerships. It just so happens that those multiple partners happen to be the U.S. and a number of U.S. allies and partners, plus Russia. And so I think today, one thing that is different, another thing that's different, is that India has, because of its own economic growth, its growing military power, the fact that it's a nuclear power as well, that it has more partners with whom to work to kind of balance China in a way that was not available to them in the past. And so I think you do see that difference. The other thing I think there's a key difference is that the Cold War, the primary theater was was the transatlantic theater, was Europe. Whereas now India is going to find that a lot of the choices that it will have to be make will be in the context of Asia, the Indo-Pacific being the kind of center of this US-China competition. So I think there are key differences. But I think the argument I make in my book that the China, as long as US and India see, uh, have concurrence, have convergence on the nature, urgency of the China challenge and how to approach it, that it will lead them to align with each other. And I think we've been seeing that increasingly over the last few years. And as long as there's a willing US, I think you will see that over the next few months. And that related finally to the point that you asked about why India has not moved, will not move entirely to, say, the US camp, is because I think many of the reasons it wanted diversification or non-alignment or strategic autonomy still stand. India wants Indian leaders, want to be able to make their own decisions, to have their own space. And so the way they have done that, and they will continue to do it, is not just with the US, but to have these other partnerships, partly because 
Uh, they don't trust any external partners as totally reliable. They think oh, everybody acts in their own interests. You don't know if they will be dependable. And in the U.S. case, particularly as we've seen ups and downs in the Trump administration, which overall on the defense and security cooperation side have been quite good for the U.S. and India, they've always had this sense that they don't know whether U.S.-China policy will remain consistent or whether it would change. And for example, if a new administration comes in, uh, will it want to work more closely with China on some of these transnational issues, etc.? So I think you will see India wanting to keep its options open. I do think this moment, and if China continues to press India, it will, within the Indian government, there are still debates about certain things that are on the margin. Should we do this with the US or not? I think these are the kind of moments that would lead India to say, Yes, let's do that additional step with the U.S. And these additional what, what steps... Sort of, what sort of things do you have in mind? I mean, when you say thing, things that are on the margin, what are the sort of decision points where a call has to be made in one direction or the other? Sure. So, you know, if you think about to do more operationally with the U.S., so I'll give you an example of something uh, that happened before, which is the Doklam incident, which was another boundary standoff that took place at the China-India-Bhutan trijunction in 2017. This, this is also in the Himalayas, I take it. Yes, but on the opposite, on the other side of the, uh, so it's more on the eastern sector of the China-India boundary, though it was technically at the Bhutan-China boundary. And what you saw then is, after that incident took place, you saw in the Indian government a decision to move on certain agreements, for example, whether that was that moment clarified for India that signing, for example, some information sharing agreements with the US could actually benefit India. Or for example, India during Doklam saw the benefits of some of the capabilities that it acquired from the US, the P-8I reconnaissance, the maritime surveillance aircraft, which flew right up to the India-China boundary for reconnaissance during that. And so you see then a decision, for example, to buy more of those, to acquire more of that capability. I think what you will see this time is perhaps this make a difference in terms of India's decisions on acquisitions, on the willingness to take that operational cooperation and interoperability that they've been working on with the US to a deeper level that people might have been reluctant about before. But I think it'll also make a difference to some issues in the India-China context that will redound to the US benefit. For example, the Indian decision on Huawei being allowed into 5G trials. I, I think they will be less appetite for that in India if it has not already killed it, that this incident would really be kind of a tipping point on that decision. I'd like to go back, and you mentioned Russia earlier, so I'd like to ask you a little more about the India-Russia relationship today. I think there are some, both in Washington and in New Delhi, who think that that relationship is is living on memory, right? Like it's it's living on, the, on, on history and that that's what's propelling it forward. But as you say, there's still an extremely robust defense relationship there are certain technologies that India can only get from Russia. And I think in a certain sense, it, Russia is seen as a more or as a less unpredictable foreign policy partner than the United States. And so I've seen some people who have said, oh, this will put Russia in a really complicated, tricky situation between India and the US and China. But it also also occurs to me that this drives home for both India and Russia the importance of their relationship, because India doesn't want to just lose Russia to China. And Russia doesn't want India to lose India to, to the United States. How do you see Russia's role in the India-China relationship going forward? And, and, and do you think that this will be a wedge between India and Russia? Or, or 
drive them more closely together or neither? I think what you've seen is Russia likes, it's a bit of a Goldilocks approach to India and China. Russia likes a certain amount of competition between China and India because it, for example, it, it, it is why India continues to seek a relationship with Russia, whether it's for military equipment or to see Russia as a balancer. But Russia doesn't want to see China and India, the tensions escalate to the point they have, because then that'll require Russia to make choices between China and India, choices that it does not want to make because uh, it is now has this close partnership with China. And it is a partnership that it finds necessary for global reasons. And it does not want itself to be exposed, especially to the Indian public, which has been told that this is a time-tested, reliable partner. Mm-hmm. It does not want to be exposed uh, in a way that would suggest that it is uh, taking a China-friendly position. Having said that, you've seen the Russians take a fairly neutral stance, which while I think the Indian government would not expect them to take anything else, given their relation, the Russian relationship with China, you've seen kind of some uh, heartburn about Russia saying things like, we respect the sovereignty of China and we respect mm-hmm. the sovereignty of India. I think where there will be greater concern in India is not so much what the Russians say, but what they do. And I think uh, the Ru- Indian defense minister went to Russia And they actually put out, uh, sources put out the information that what he was going for was to make sure uh, to get an assurance that supplies uh, of equipment and spare parts from Russia to India would not be disrupted. Mm -hmm. That suggests that there's concern that they would be disrupted because, as uh, somebody, the source said, that we don't want it to be impacted by the larger geopolitical or political context. And so I think, you know, it was probably partly a, a message to the Russians that, look, if this is a moment, these are clarifying moments. And if you suggest to us that you cannot be a reliable supplier and that in what you do, not necessarily what you say, that you are going to not just be neutral, but perhaps stall on supplies to benefit China, that is going to have kind of repercussions for the Russia-India relationship more broadly. And privately, it was probably also conveyed that that would then lead to decisions, whether it was terms of defense acquisition or others, which would push India even more closely into U.S. arms. So I think this is a tough situation for Russia to be in, and it's probably one of the countries that wants to see this situation de-escalate faster than anybody else. Interesting. I think we, we, we need to, at some point in this conversation, bring in the kind of what's happening domestically in India at the moment, because particularly viewing it from abroad, it's striking how drastically Hindu nationalism has taken hold in the last couple of years under under Modi. And I suppose I'd be interested to know what you, whether you think that's driving India's foreign policy stance. I mean, I can imagine a more nationalist sort of Indianness at home could kind of ally itself with with the cause of belligerence abroad, or at least kind of could make incidents like the one that happened a couple of weeks ago more inflammatory. I mean, do you think that India's a liberal turn domestically is or or, or will make a difference to its foreign policy? Well, I'm not sure it's quite relevant to this situation in the way you mentioned, because it wasn't India that took those initial moves in May to no. kind of change uh, the status quo. I think what a broader kind of more nationalism, so not Hindu nationalism, but you know, Indian nationalism in terms of protecting India's borders, ensuring, as Modi put it in his speech, that not one inch of Indian territory is lost. Uh, that is the kind of thing I think that does put some pressure on being, for example, the government, the Indian government, not to accept a fait accompli. 
The difficulty, of course, is dislodging the Chinese from their positions either requires the use of force, which will escalate the situation, or pressing, which is what is being done right now, pressing the Chinese diplomatically and using other kind of leverage that India might have. I think the question about the domestic situation where it might fit in is the question that has to be asked is that the focus on these some of these kind of issues that tend to be very kind of uh, polarizing at home, is it taking away the attention and energy that needs to be devoted and state capacity that needs to be devoted to building Indian capabilities and capacities? Is that suffering because of these very the attention being paid on these very polarizing issues that have come up. States have don't have infinite capacity or resources or whether it's that's or even time. And so I think that's the question, which is, I mean, one thing Indian history shows is foreign powers take advantage when India is divided at home. And so I think that is the situation where this might be relevant. But I think at the at the boundary it's more you know, on the one hand, you do see that the kind of sense of nationalism that has grown around Asia, but also in India, can put pressure on a leader like Modi, who has said, I'm, I'm a strong man or a tough leader, to not compromise. But you could also see, because he has that image of a strong man, that might actually give him more flexibility than another leader might have had. So not, not Nixon goes to China, but Modi goes to China. I think, though, we, he's already tried that. And at the moment, <laughs> there are questions about whether or not that has has made any difference because you know he's he's probably met Xi Jinping more than any other Chinese and Indian leaders have spent time with each other than perhaps Nehru and Zhou Lai. Huh. And they've had bilateral summits, they meet regularly at multilateral summits. But you know, this last ten years has been a period of increasing engagement between China and India at the leadership level and economic terms. But it's also been an increasingly competitive period. This is now the fourth time the militaries are, you know, ha- are involved in stand- this, a serious standoff against each other since Xi Jinping came to power. So while I think the personal interaction, what it might have done, is stabilize the relationship in parts, I think this moment shows it's clearly not sufficient and it has its limits in terms of impact on the ground. We'd actually like to talk more about that in our next section, which is one that our colleagues at the New Statesman podcast like to call... You Ask Us. <laughs> I think we need to work on that, but uh, <laughs> uh, which, we have, which we've stolen from them for World Review, but uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Emily, do you want to tee us up with a question? We have picked two questions this week. The first is from a listener by the name of Josh Westerling, who asks, people talk about the Thucydides trap in reference to the United States and China, but how do we factor in another rising power, India, to this? Tanvi? So the uh, historian in me is just going to set aside that analogy because uh, uh, <laughs> it, it generates strong feelings, and and uh, and I'll just talk about kind of the right, you know where India fits into the U.S. China kind of not just competition, but you know can you see uh, can you see the rising power kind of ruling power dimension play out in the India-China context? I think what's been interesting is there's been an asymmetry in interest between India and China in each other for a number of years. You've seen, for India, China just looms much larger. It sees it as its number one challenge, has since the late 50s, whether that's alone or in conjunction with Pakistan. India has seen China. It looms large for India in many dimensions. Whereas for China, India, it just hasn't had that level of interest in India. And even as there is more interest now in India, 
in India's rise uh, for a number of reasons, one of which is that India's economic rise has actually been seen as an opportunity by some in China. They want to invest there. They want to take advantage of that. But it's also now seen as a potential challenge, uh, not alone necessarily, uh, but in conjunction with the U.S. And I think this is where it fits into U.S.-China competition, where you have seen China quite wary of India's growing relationship uh, with the U.S., but also with other U.S. allies, including Japan, Australia, uh, and other U.S. partners like Singapore. And so you have seen Chinese concern about India as part of that kind of network of alliance and partnerships. Nothing gets under China's skin like the Quad, which is the grouping of Australia, India, Japan, and the U.S. And so you do see this kind of being a very interacting set of uh, bilateral competitions, these kind of dyads. And one of the things that Indian policymakers believe is that China takes India more seriously now because of India's relationship with the U.S. The U.S. very much is helping the part of the logic, the strategic logic of the U.S.-India relationship, as Washington has seen it for at least the last three administrations, is that India's rise is in American interest and should be supported because it will be a geopolitical counterbalance and democratic contrast to China. So I think it's very, these, this is, these are very intertwined competitions that are playing out, uh, but I don't think anything is inevitable. I think it's a smart question from Josh in the sense that, I mean, the Thucydides trap is about the, the idea that when one great power rises and, and displaces another, you, you get a war, you know, classic example being the First World War and the rise of mm-hmm. Germany challenging British domination. And, and you know, clearly the power shifts are at work in in Asia. But I wonder actually whether the difference here might be that both India and China, their rise has not been simultaneous and it has happened in different ways. But it's not like either of them was a was a or the superpower before their rise. So they've I just wonder, I mean I'm you know, Tanvi, you're the expert, but whether the fact that India and China's rises have been semi-simultaneous and in some ways interconnected helps to avoid the risk of a kind of perception of you know, one, one displacing the other or challenging the other. I think that's right. They have very similar self, self-conceptions in some senses, which is that both actually do see themselves as re-emerging powers, as all civilizations right. that each contributed about a quarter of the global GDP at one point, and then you know they have this sense of grievance that they were then with victims of you know, mostly Western powers who, uh, in the Chinese case, the Japanese as well, but that, that they were then subjugated. And so this is their reemergence, that they have a right to a leadership role. But this is where kind of, I think, the different conceptions then come in. You, know, you see Beijing wants to think that it is deserving of the dominant role in Asia. And India is seen having a very different conception of what Asia should look like. Not a unipolar Asia that Delhi thinks Beijing wants, but a multipolar Asia. And these are kind of very conflicting goals, especially for two countries that have overlapping peripheries. And they're involved in each other's, increasingly involved in each other's neighborhoods. And you've seen this play out, for example, as you know they're both rising. I think part of the reason you've been seeing a lot more boundary standoffs over the last few years is that both countries have the resources to build up their presence and their infrastructure at their boundaries in a way that they never had in the past. So they've just been bumping up against each other, not just at their own boundary, but around the region. 
We have a second question to ask, which I think is important to bring in, particularly as you're both in Washington. And this was a question from an anonymous listener who asks, will Joe Biden look to reset US relations with China if he wins the November election? Or will he also take an adversarial stance towards Beijing akin to that of the Trump administration? Emily, do you want want to kick us off with this? And then I'd be also interested in Tanvi's view on the kind of the, the, the Indian dimension as well. Yeah, I think first of all, we, I, I want to push back on the idea that Trump has just taken an adversarial stance toward China. I think on trade and the economy, yes, absolutely. He believes that the United States is being taken advantage of economically by a variety of countries around the globe. One of them is China. Of course, you've seen an adversarial stance toward China in the economic realm. Having said that, I think there are plenty of people who would say that the United States stepping down from various agencies within the United Nations and questioning multilateral institutions has helped China. And more directly, if you look at China's domestic policies, Trump has admitted that he did not want to sanction Chinese officials over their treatment of the of the Uyghurs because they were in the middle of trade talks. A, B, he said that, oh, maybe the Hong Kong protesters could sit down with Xi Jinping. And even as recently as this February or this winter, he was calling Xi his friend and saying that he was doing a wonderful job with the coronavirus. Pan- the, the coronavirus. So he's not exactly a neocon. I mean, this came out in John Bolton's book, didn't it? Yeah, he can be quite aggressive toward countries, but the whole thing with neoconservatives, those who reject and still accept the term, is that it's ostensibly me- like the, the military action is ostensibly meant to promote some value. Obviously, there are some deep flaws with that logic, as we have seen from American foreign policy. But, you know, Trump's stance on China, I think you would have a hard time making the argument that Trump's stance on China has been motivated by a want, desire to protect human rights. So in some ways, I think he's actually been, I wouldn't say soft on China, but has, but has let China get away with quite a lot. I do not think that we should expect, based on what the Biden campaign has put out specifically on China and what Joe Biden himself has said on China, I don't think that we should expect him to try to to come back together with Xi, which is interesting because at the beginning of the Obama administration, you had Obama saying, you know, we'll take the Pacific Ocean and you can take the Indian Ocean. So we've come a a long way in terms of democratic, in terms of the sort of democratic would-be president language on China. However, I would also note that there are going to be, should Biden win, there are going to be issues in which he either cooperates with Beijing or the world is doomed, namely climate change. So it will be interesting to see how how he walks that line. But Tanvi, what do you think? I agree with you. I think, you know, where we've seen, and, and you know, just to go into your point about Trump, I think the way the Indians have sort of seen this is they remember Mar-a-Lago Trump, mm-hmm. uh, which to them was, you know, sparked all their concerns about a G2, that is a US-China condominium that would divvy up the world. You mean when, when Trump had, had Xi to Mar-a-Lago as a visitor? Yes. And they had they shared chocolate cake, or at least one of them ate it and was offered it. And you know they they remember that moment in spring 2017, and then you know saw the switch after that summer to a more competitive view. And what the Indians have done is it is built into their kind of understanding that uh, Trump might switch again. But what they've done is look, let's take advantage of this competitive view as long as possible. I think where the Biden, I think the the view that I I think we've heard from uh, a number of people associated with the Biden campaign, but also the campaign itself taking this very hard stance on China, in fact, calling Trump out for not being strong enough and consistent enough on China, which we've seen before, by the way, in American campaigns, only to have that change when 
somebody comes into office. We've also seen Michel Flournoy, for example, uh, former Undersecretary of Defense, not just write about kind of China as a challenge more broadly. She specifically wrote about how the China-India boundary standoff, for example, clarified things and meant that the U.S. had to work with allies and partners to deter China more effectively. But I agree with Emily that I think the question will be uh, not will the competitive view still stand, but the question is the approach and the choices, right? That uh, there might be a call for collaboration on transnational issues like pandemics or climate change. The question is, what is the price that China will ask for Mm -hmm. in return for that cooperation? And will it be a dialing back of certain things that will worry allies and partners? And I think the other question related to that is, leaders often tell themselves, there's a certain amount of belief in yourself as being different. And do you see a Biden who says, partly because there will be support within the US for less defense spending, et cetera, will he tell himself that, you know, I might be able to change Xi's mind. And so I think people will watch for that moment, that whether it's because of needing to work on these transnational issues or because they will be pressure at home, whether from the people calling for restraint or retrenchment uh, or kind of just, you know, on defense spending. Do you see kind of an inclination to say, let's try this one more time with Beijing? Very interesting. I'd like to say thank you to everyone who sent in their questions. I'm sorry we didn't get round to all of them. We are going to gather up those that we get every week uh, and do a sort of world review, you ask us special, complete with call and response uh, at some point over the summer, uh, where we'll go through as many of those that we didn't manage in the normal episodes as possible. So do keep sending them in to us at youaskus.co.uk. Next week, we're going to be talking about the coronavirus pandemic. And I'll announce our guest on our international Twitter account, which is at Statesman World uh, on Wednesday. So have your questions ready for us or questions for our guest and send those in. Emily, do you want to lead off on our final segment? Yep, it's our final segment where we take a look ahead to next week. Tanvi, what will you be watching closely next week? You will be shocked to learn that I am watching to see if this. Chi- I'm watching to see how the China-India boundary standoff plays out. It do, do they cont- actually put in place or implement their stated desire to de-escalate the situation and disengage from forward positions at the border, or does this continue? I'm interested in all in it both for geopolitical and world peace reasons, but also from a personal perspective, because uh, that'll tell me how much time I'm going to have to do other things, hopefully more fun stuff. During your summer. Yes. Jeremy, what are you looking out for? I will be paying particular attention on uh, next Wednesday, which is July the 1st, which is going to be a busy day in global affairs for various reasons. You've heard of Super Tuesday. This is going to be um, quite eventful Wednesday, is how I'm going to put it. First of all, Germany takes over the EU presidency on that day, as previously advertised, um, which is going to be interesting. Lots of interesting questions about the very ambitious EU recovery fund that's on the table, on things like the EU's relations with China. So I'll be watching that. It's also the day from which the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said he plans to begin his proposed annexation of the West Bank, which could be hugely significant. And July the 1st is also normally a day of pro-democracy demonstrations in Hong Kong, as it's the the anniversary of the handover in 1997. So obviously, it could also be an important moment in in the standoff between protesters and authorities there. So I'll be watching all of those. Emily, what will you be looking out for next week? Mine is also a July 1st event. July 1st is when the voting culminates for the Russian referendum. Early voting has already started. It's a referendum on amendments to the constitution that could possibly allow President Vladimir Putin to stay in power until 2036. 
So with that, all that remains is for us to say thank you, Tommy Madan, so much for joining us. You're very welcome. It was nice to be on the show. And as a reminder, you can get Tanvi's book, Fateful Triangle, wherever good political historical books are sold. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave us a review, subscribe, and tell your friends about it. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you very much for listening, and until next week. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.